Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we hear from Farai Chidea, Joan Shorenstein Fellow and Senior Writer at 538, and Zach Hexley, Joan Shorenstein Fellow and Senior Advisor to Bernie Sanders' campaign. They discuss the role of race and class in the 2016 presidential election in a conversation moderated by Nick O'Mealy, Director of the Shorenstein Centre. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Shorenstein Center Brown Bag Speaker Series. My name is Nico Mealy. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn to our two guests today. They are both Shorenstein Fellows, and it's very exciting to see them here. Farai Chidea has covered every election since 1996 for outlets including CNN, NPR, and most recently in the 2016 election, 538 where she is a senior writer. She's the author of six books, including Trust, Reaching the 100 Million Missing Voters, The Color of Our Future, and Don't Believe the Hype, Fighting Cultural Misinformation About African Americans. She was the founder and editor of popandpolitics.com in 1995, and uh, she was a fellow at our sister institute, the IOP, uh, in the spring of 2012. She's also an alum of this fine institution, Harvard College, graduating from Harvard College. Her work here at the Shorenstein Center this spring is about the role of race and gender in press coverage of the political campaign in 2016. Zach Exley is a political and technology consultant who most recently worked as a senior advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign. He's worked as a labor organizer uh, for SCIU, UAW, and the AFL-CIO, and also is the organizing director in the early days of MoveOn.org, taking a substantial role in shaping that, in- that entity. He was director of online organizing and online communications for John Kerry's presidential campaign, the co-founder and president of the New Organizing Institute, and the chief community officer and chief revenue officer for the Wikimedia Foundation that funds and manages Wikipedia. He's also worked at ThoughtWorks, a global IT consultancy, and he is here at the Shorency Center this spring writing about the role of the news media in creating narratives around Christian conservatives and secular progressives. I want to welcome both of our um, uh, fellows to to the Brown Bag today and, and just outline for you why we asked them to speak. They, they both have... Um, I mean, I think broadly speaking, in 2016, a lot of the major media institutions missed the story. They really got it wrong, in a sense. Uh, the, 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 in some, I think in some ways the obsession with Trump the celebrity meant that some of the deeper <coughs> trends and currents in American society, those stories and approaches didn't get told, weren't well understood. But... Both Zach and Fry actually were were neck deep in it. Were in different ways, really in touch with what was going on in the American um, in, in in the in the American population. I think they really understood in a substantial way what's happening with American voters. And so I thought it'd be fun to invite them to both talk to us today about. Um, about what's going on in the American electorate. What do these American voters look like from both of their kind of unusual experiences and vantage points? And so I'm going to open, I'm going to ask them a few questions, and I'm going to open it up to questions for the audience. So hopefully they, maybe they'll ask each other some questions. But I want to open by asking both of you, uh, what is, you know, to tell us a story uh, from the last 12 months about your experience of the American voter? Yeah, I I did a project called The Voters for 538 where we did a bunch of data analysis and then a bunch of field reporting. So there were nine articles, three podcasts, and then a sort of wrap up what happened to uh, people after the election. And what I found is very consistent with what other people have found, which is that all of the people who were, I mean, obviously not all of the people in the country, but all of the people who I interviewed who were reluctant to vote for Trump because they thought he was crazy, came around and decided he was the best of the two candidates. So I talked to a woman in uh, suburban, um, she was in a suburb of Pittsburgh, and she literally called Trump crazy, um, but she also hated Hillary Clinton. 
and she got in line and voted for Trump. And time and time again, for example, I went to the South and interviewed white evangelicals. They did not like Trump. Neither of this couple voted for him in the primaries. They fell in line. So really, the, the story of this election is about white voters in particular falling in line with Donald Trump, even though many were reluctant. And, and it's also, and I'll leave it here and, and pass it to Zach, it's also about, I think, sometimes us believing what we want to believe. So there was this emphasis that white college-educated Americans would not vote for Trump when, in fact, they did vote for Trump. And, in fact, some of the early analyses of exit polls said that white college-educated voters had not favored Trump when, in fact, they did by a narrow margin, which gives the lie to this idea that it's just the white working class. And I think that's very important. Um, well, yeah, I, I uh, am thinking about this. Uh, I, I actually live a little bit outside of Springfield, Missouri, in uh, southwest Missouri, and uh, and in Springfield, um, when I go into Springfield and work, I usually hang out at uh, this hipster Christian coffee shop. It's called Kingdom Coffee, and it's this you know, <laughs> and the Wi-Fi password is like Psalm 17 or something, and uh, and and it's and this is actually really common, right? It's like there's three hipster Christian coffee shops in Springfield, and then like one heathen coffee shop. So, <laughs> and where's Starbucks? Uh, Starbucks, yeah, and they're it's way, way out in the in the outskirts, yeah, none downtown, and so uh, so but but Kingdom Coffee is run by uh, this little group of young people who um, they have beards and like the earplugs, you know, and they're and really cool tattoos with like Bible verses in Greek and everything. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Does it, raise your hand if you know these kind of folks. Okay, so. Um, and so they, uh, so the day after the election, I was in there and I said, wow, what do you guys think? And they're like, yeah, huh. And so I asked them about their church. They have, they didn't, they, they weren't really freaking out or anything. They weren't like, oh, it's so terrible at all, actually. Um, and I knew they were kind of progressive on a lot of stuff, you know, on like economic issues, social, you know, a lot of social justice issues, but they were also, you know, uh, you know, theologically, um, kind of conservative, you know, in, in terms of their interpretation of the Bible, uh, meaning on like theological issues, you know. And so, so I asked them about their church. You know, I said, oh, so they didn't vote. I said, how did you guys vote? And they said, oh, we didn't vote. And, you know, just it's so gross, all this stuff. We didn't vote. And I was like, really? Like, how did people in your church vote? And they're like, yeah, a lot of them probably voted. I don't know. They probably voted for, for Trump. And they go to kind of a uh, a cool, you know, also hipster church. I mean, that's just the word to describe it. And they, um, so I said, but what about the tapes? You know, like all this stuff that came out over the last few weeks, didn't that just disgust you? And, and didn't, weren't you tempted to go in and, and vote for Clinton or vote for somebody else? And they said, <coughs> what tapes? And they literally had not heard mm -hmm. about the, you know, the Access Hollywood uh, tapes where Trump was bragging about sexual assault. They literally hadn't heard about it. And I, I was like, how is that possible? But they never, they don't watch TV, don't listen to the radio. They spend a lot of time on Facebook. And, and, and I think, you know, one of the narratives that's been challenged, especially by, by Matt and others, is that uh, around here these days is that uh, this filter bubble concept is, 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 uh, is, is leaving something out, right? It's, it's not as simple as people being in these filter bubbles. But in this case, um, these folks had, had just never heard about this. So. so when you both look at the kind of uh, the current, you, you're both describing uh, some kind of deeply, I think, confusing trends in a sense. Or you're telling stories about Americans that are uh, run counter to some of the narratives we hear in the press um, and to the way we think about the country, right? Uh, and, you know, Fry, you're describing not uh, not a kind of dyed-in-the-wool conservative who believes at all costs, but someone really kind of conflicted but nevertheless preferred Trump over Hillary. And, Zach, you're describing um, kind of progressive Christians who don't vote. And so I'm wondering, both of you... Um, you know how you uh, how you see the way the I wonder if you both could speak to a little bit to the the way the the media shapes and builds these narratives and the best way to puncture them. Well, I I interviewed um, I won't say who it is I don't know whether she would 
want me to, but I interviewed a former MSNBC host uh, for my Shorenstein project who basically said that the media is responsible for Trump's victory. Now, I don't know if I believe that, but I do think that Professor Patterson's research here at Shorenstein certainly shows that during the election, uh, Trump had less negative coverage than Clinton, and he got more airtime by far, especially during the primaries, and sort of crowded out everyone else and, and sucked the oxygen out of the room. So I, I think we have to take a hard look at, w at what we as an institution, uh, as the media did. And I remember having some very frustrating conversations. I think we also just need to educate ourselves about politics um, and about history. There was a, a conference on campus last Friday uh, about the history of slavery as it relates to Harvard and other universities. And Ta-Nehisi Coates was speaking and he said, we think of slavery as a bump in the road, but it was the road. And I think that when it comes to America and politics, we think of race as a bump in the road, but it's the road. Almost every major political development in American society has been shaped by race. When you say all men are created equal, which men do you mean? Um, when you pass various amendments, you know, so many of them have had to do with reconstructing our very constitution so that it can be accepting of true enfranchisement. And you see the voter suppression that happened in North Carolina. So I think that there's constantly been an underrating of the impact of race. And I bring this up because I had some frustrating conversations, uh, you know, in my newsroom where I took Trump seriously in late 2015. Not that he could win, but that his rhetoric would fundamentally reshape the race, and we had to treat it not just as some kind of weird, quirky thing, but as part of an established pattern, um, well-documented in political science of what's called racial resentment. And racial resentment is a powerful motivator. So if you think about negative advertising, everyone says they hate negative ads, but they're the, the, they're the most successful in campaigns, and that's partly because of our neuropsychology. We're hardwired to really take negative messaging seriously. Racial mes resentment messaging is a very specific form of negative advertising, and Donald Trump was a master of it, and to treat him as some goofy, weird celebrity was a fundamental miscalculation. But, but how about, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, how about the, um, uh, so, so you're saying that that uh, that Trump was that the the rhetoric Trump was using was really kind of, uh, in some sense, in was certainly was intentional. How conscious is a question mark to inflame racial tension or kind of pre-existing uh, prejudice in a way that would drive drive a kind of political energy, and um, but we also see actually I think. Right, a real a decline in minority turnout in 2016, uh, despite despite you know Trump saying is in his in his announcement Mexicans are rapists and kind of making a number of really racially charged uh, um, uh, uh, statements. And so, it I understand the the piece about kind of America's long complicated history with race and how. Um, and how Trump, uh, and how Trump, you know, speaks to kind of a deep and dark thread in American politics. Uh, but what about the other side of that? What about the kind of, you know, the the diverse emerging American majority that wasn't persuaded by Clinton? Right, and I agree with that. But I also don't think. I mean, I think a lot of times, and and I don't put you in this category. A lot of people point to voter of color turnout as if that, you know, that alone would have swung the election. I think that, I think that the reality is that um, there were, there was voter suppression in some places like North Carolina that's, that's documented and we have to take that into account. But also you can't expect people of color to step up when they don't connect with the messaging. And so I did as part of this voter series um, a piece on black, a black millennial voter in North Carolina who decided to vote for a third party despite the fact that he was in a swing state because he had disagreements with Clinton's platform. So this comes back to the question of should people of color always <coughs> step up when they don't see themselves reflected in the messaging. I'm not speaking to whether or not Clinton's messaging uh, was on target 
you know, broadly, but I think for some people it wasn't. And there's this expectation that, you know, uh, voters of color kind of have to make do with what they can get. So, so tell us a little bit, though, about what, what, what you think some of the issues are that would motivate or animate. Well, for, for young black men in particular, it was concerns about how um, Clinton would handle the criminal justice system and mass incarceration. And that was a tricky one because her husband, in retrospect, has become identified with a wave of mass incarceration. There's statistics that are mixed about that and also, you know, questions about how the laws of the Clinton era came to pass with black support. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that. But I think that fundamentally what you have to remember is that um, millennials of color were super voters for Sanders. And there's a great project uh, called Gen Forward that did oversampling <coughs> of millennials of color. And Asian, black, Latino, heavily Sanders voters in the primary. They were not satisfied. They, they too wanted change or you know um, someone outside of the Washington political fold. And if you wanted someone outside of Washington, um, Clinton was not necessarily your person. So, so Trump voters, some Trump voters wanted someone who was not a Washington insider and chose him for that reason. There were many reasons Trump voters chose that. But to, to ask a groundswell of not just millennials of color, but I think there were, you know, my mother's, my mother voted for Sanders in the primary. And um, there were a lot of voters of color who just wanted something different than what was being dished up. And, and I think that that too well, you was say not, a lot of voters. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I, but I don't want to shift the, you know, I'm happy to talk about voters of color, but I think that, I think that the dynamics of this election really pivoted around um, what one person called the Cinemax problem, which is that if you're buying cable and Cinemax is part of the package, you're buying Cinemax. And so if, you're, if you voted for Donald Trump and racial resentment was part of the package, whether or not that was your primary reason for voting for him, that was part of the package. And I think that that is a profound effect, has a profound effect on our current government. You can see with the travel bans, you can see with um, his policies that he is he's making good on his claims. And people who voted for him and thought he wouldn't make good <coughs> on them are going to have to reckon with their votes. Zach, uh, I want to, uh, I, I, you were on the Bernie campaign, and I just wondered about your perspective on some of these, uh, on some of what Farai was saying about how that played out. Well, I think, I mean, I, I want to step back for a minute, though, and, and just kind of note something that, that often doesn't get noted in these kind of discussions, that, you know, in, in, in an election, in any election, you know, especially a national presidential election, there's eight million variables, right, all going across purposes, right? And, and, and voters don't, you know, voters don't vote. They're not like, Okay, let's see. I am a white working class person working in a factory, you know, making uh, ninety thousand a year. But jobs like that are going away. So um, Clinton, you know, I think Trump is talking about these jobs. So I'll vote for Trump. I mean, it's, it's people aren't robots, right? There's they make decisions, um, you know, and, and then and then you know, there's a, uh, you know, when we try to sort of do social science on people, you know, no offense to all the wonderful social scientists, <laughs> but, you know, we, we then try to, like, come up with, you know, their responses to these stimuli and try to make it more complicated and measure a bunch of variables. But, you know, and, and then some people throw up their hands and say, oh, these people are just irrational and, you know, uh, you know, responding to, to narratives of fear and stuff. But, like, I just want, like, one, one conversation that made a huge impact on me back when I was working as a labor organizer was this uh, worker who was making minimum wage in the nursing home as in the maintenance department. He had worked in a steel factory in Bethlehem Steel or something, you know, in uh, Pennsylvania, making probably the equivalent of $120,000 or $130,000 a year, you know, in his steel union job. <coughs> um, but the, the steel company got bought by a mergers and acquisition firm who just stopped investing, you know, stopped modernizing, just started asking for wage cuts, and the workers had to give wage cuts every year in, or every couple of years in negotiations. They had to give up wage cuts, otherwise they were going to shut down the plant and, and call it a day. Um, but then they event he's, so I said, well, how did you, you know, so how did, how did it eventually shut? And he said, um, we eventually just said no, we voted no. And he gave me more details. He was saying no to an incredibly high salary compared to where he was headed, 
all the workers, they, they said no. And I said, well, why would you, you know, the, the company came back and was like, no, we want an extra dollar. And at the last minute, and they were just like, we can't just keep doing this. And so I said, well, why would you, why would you vote to shut down your plant like that when you were still making like 25 bucks an hour when you knew you were going to go to minimum wage? And he said, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror. You know, and so he had he, he was complicit, you know, they, they were uh, consenting, you know, they were being forced to go in and vote for the dismantling of their uh, means of making a living. So, you know, when, uh, you know, Trump eked out this tiny victory in Michigan, you know, and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in these these industrial states where lots of people had that same experience. Right. And, you know, and they after looking at the last several decades and this was just one variable. Right. Of course, there's all, you know, also race, gender, you know, uh, and a million other variables that are going on uh, in the election. But, you know, but to just think about how people make decisions, it sometimes may seem irrational, but it's also uh, very rational. And um, and then, you know, uh, um, in, in the end. In Michigan, for example, I was just looking up the numbers, you know, and, and it's just this, you know, this tiny number of, um, relatively tiny number of Republicans um, turned out, you know, who might not have turned out, and a tiny number of Democrats stayed home who might have come out and voted. A handful of people out of frustration voted for a third-party candidate. The turnout for a third-party candidate was higher. And, um, and sorry, I didn't answer your question. No, Do you no, want no, to try no, again? No, no, that's, but, that's good. Well, <laughs> that's well, good. Let me, let me yeah. throw in something that kind of speaks to what you're saying. It's like I've, I've tried to come up with frameworks for how we even talk about political decision making. And I think that one of them that, that is working for me for now is acknowledgement versus belief. So um, I can acknowledge what you deeply feel but not believe it's true but I have to acknowledge it in order to understand it. So, for, for example, there were many times where many voters from the left and right who I interviewed, I was like, yeah, I acknowledge that, but I don't believe that. You know, I have absolutely, you know, a, a, a set of, a body of evidence that is not supporting what you say, but I have to acknowledge where you're coming from in order to make sense of this narrative. And, and so, for example, I was talking to one, um, I was talking, two examples of this are, the black millennial voter in North Carolina who decided to go with a third party and thought that was the best of his options. You know, I'm, I'm very much a practical voter. I vote for the best candidate who can accomplish things that I want accomplished. He knew at this point that the third party candidate he was voting for wouldn't win and North Carolina was a swing state. So if I were in his position, I, I actually think third party voting is very healthy when done strategically, but it, in his position I wouldn't have voted the same way. I acknowledge your frustrations with the two party system, however I don't believe it's actually the best tactical choice. Another example of that was a Trump voter in Ohio, in um, the Warren, Ohio area where it was part of a, a trio of states where more than 20% of the registered Democrats who walked in switched to Republican to vote in the Republican primary. And he said, you know, th this is an area where a lot of steel mills and car plants have shut down. And he said, you know, the EPA came in and because of them, we don't have jobs. Now we have a clean river, but I'd rather have jobs. <laughs> now, his belief seemed to be that it was river versus jobs. First of all, the EPA didn't caused the shutdowns of the plants, so that's one factual thing that it was a much bigger economic issue, but also the idea <coughs> that you have to sacrifice the environment in order to make a living, you know, that's a very profound thing to think, and, and I had to acknowledge that deeply as one of his core beliefs and understand where he was coming from. So I think that we have to acknowledge more of the, the strains of thought in American political discourse and then we can try to rebut each other if we want, but, but first let's acknowledge what's out there. Right, do we have questions from, from the audience? I'll keep going if there aren't any questions, but yeah. Okay. Derek, introduce yourself. Uh, Derek Jackson, a uh, fellow last semester. Um, uh, um, in the unconscious talking of, of Trump voters, did um, white privilege ever come up as a conscious concept um, in voting for the Trump package? And is that, um, given what you just said about the millennials who don't 
watch TV and listen to radio. I'm now intrigued in a fresh way of, can you take even a um, back of the envelope guess as to what percentage of Trump voters in fact are like that? Well, so you asked about white privilege coming up. Like, first of all, as many of my friends point out, I mean, I would never use the word white privilege when talking to someone about their political choices because they would shut down immediately. Like, I tend to, someone said, how do you do so much reporting with people who you profoundly disagree with? And I'm not talking about Trump voters here, but I'm talking about, you know, white supremacists. I've interviewed many different types of people. And I'm like, pie and coffee. You know, if I buy you pie and give you coffee and shut up and let you talk, usually I'll get some good answers. So um, so I don't ask directly about things like white supremacy, but certainly, you know, I heard some anti-Mexican ranting. I heard, you know, I've, I've heard I heard on the campaign trail various strains of racial resentment. But mainly what I, I heard was something that people have acknowledged really drove a lot of Trump voters. Trump voters are not... Um, poorer than most people in America actually are slightly better off, but tend to be older, closer to retirement, have secure jobs, but worry about their kids and see the American landscape getting worse. So I see to the extent that there is, um, you know, sort of the, the intersection of race and economics is this idea that is called the American dream, that your kids should live better than you. And I think that a lot of people of color have wanted that but never expected it would necessarily be true in the way that white Americans felt it would be true. It felt like a blood oath to white Americans, whereas many people of color were like, it could happen or, or, you're, or you could get shot, you know? So, so I think there's a difference in expectations that really has come through. Uh, well, yeah, and also on, I just want to add something to that, that, uh, I mean, you know, out where I live, um, you know, I live in a rural area in Missouri. It's, you know, almost all white. And, um, and I, you know, I hear people, they, you know, as people over the years, as people have tried to explain, you know, what's happening to us, why are jobs going away, why are incomes going down. Um, and, and remember, it's, it doesn't have to happen to you. You know, this, this, this whole thing about, oh, you know, Trump voters are, are better off. But, yeah, but their brother-in-law just lost his job and, you know, they could be next. And they see this happening. You know, they see, their, they see people like them, you know, going over. And nobody, there's, there's no worse freakout than the freakout of the, the middle class who feels like it's about to not be in the middle class anymore. You know, like historically, that's when societies really go, go crazy is when, when those folks start losing their stability. And because uh, they have so much social power and so much of a, a such a huge sense of entitlement. And um, and so, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, I think mainly because of really aggressive campaigning on the right, especially in a lot of these new right wing media sources, the a big explanation that I hear a lot for why people why people where I live are doing worse is that black people, immigrants, you know, Muslims, refugees are doing better, you know, and there's all of these stories about, you know, it sounds crazy, but there are pe stories that people, a lot of people really believe of, you know, um, uh, Latin American immigrants coming over the border and getting a check for $35,000. You know, refugees are, you know, get, get $3,500 a month, you know, and a car, you know, and all black people, when Obama became president, got a phone. It's the Obama <laughs> phone. Has anybody heard of the Obama phone? Okay, okay yeah. So it's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wally, so, it's in the map. It's in the map. Right. So it's really, and you know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's such, so this white privilege thing, like actually people, you know, and also the way, in my, just as kind of anecdotal, I'm sure somebody somewhere, if anybody knows of somebody really studying this exact thing, I'd love to read about it. But, you know, when people, like when, when, when these folks are watching TV, right, they see a lot of really well, well off uh, people of color. Right. Like, you know, even though even though Hollywood is terrible and TV is terrible in terms of, um, give, you know, creating good, you know, central characters. But somehow the judge is always black mm -hmm. and or the doctor. Right. Or the president, usually. <coughs> right. Even before Obama became president. And so, um, you know, so there's this tokenism. Right. Which is, you know, and in ads. Right. And all this stuff. And, and so, peop, you know, but where I live, it's incredibly poor. So people are like, what's going on? And so, so, you know, this, this pushing of the, of the white privilege frame, 
you know, and the way they're hearing it. And on right-wing talk radio and on Fox News, they're constantly talking about how the left is, is uh, you know, has an agenda to destroy white privilege. Well, actually, you know, people, when people have privilege, they really like that. You know, so people are wondering, well, wait a minute, you know, if I had white privilege, so, so wait, the agenda is to take it away? And uh, so I, I do think that, white, that, you know, the actual, you know, sense of, of, you know, having had some privilege and it going away is, uh, it was something that really moved a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, again, it just moved a little bit more people to turn out. It wasn't like this massive wave, you know, there was no massive turnout for of Republicans, you know, or of white people. It's just, it, but as crazy as he was, this, a lot of this other stuff, like what we just talked about, was enough to nudge a few people into the polls. Um, hi, I'm Shaikwa. Um, so, in hearing, and just like listening to the racial resentment piece and people feeling like minorities are doing better than them and so it's not fair, how does that reconcile with also the other half of that of, I don't think that minorities should be getting all of these social safety net benefits because they need to work hard for themselves. Like, how, I don't know, how do they reconcile? Have you spoken to anyone who's been able to kind of like reconcile those things or are they just either in one space or the other? I, I just don't think, I don't, I fundamentally don't believe humans are rational actors. So, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of research shows us that we're not, you know, I mean, our, our brains evolved to make snap judgments um, and to, re, you know, to, to be able to process threat and quickly defend ourselves and protect ourselves, not so great about having long philosophical conversations about how to redistribute wealth, which no matter what anyone says, that's essentially what the government does. And, and I know that as a single black woman in New York City, my wealth is being redistributed to other people. And I'm not even mad at it. I want people's kids to be educated. I want, you know, there to be a social safety net. But I know that, that you know, this is, this is a fight for resources. And, and in some ways, we get just as, as boxed up about that fight for resources as we do about being on the veldt and, and looking for, for something to eat. Um, so, so I just... I don't think that there's any reconciling. Like, you know, there's been a lot of reporting recently about undocumented immigrants. And I did um, a piece in the voter series about uh, an American citizen who is a young woman now in college. And she is 18. She lives in Arizona. Her father has a green card. Her mother was undocumented. And she and her two siblings are born in the US, thus American citizens. And when she was 14, her mom self-deported, she was just stressed out about being undocumented in America, moved back to Mexico with two of the kids, and then her daughter came back for college and was canvassing um, for people to come out and vote. And in Arizona, you saw Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who had been you know, in violation of, of Justice Department decrees uh, for racial profiling, get voted out after 26 years because in part of the Latino vote in Arizona. But she also said a lot of people weren't that psyched to vote. So again, you know, you would think that in a state where um, you've got one candidate, Trump, really going all in on, on Mexican immigrants, you have Sheriff Joe Arpaio with a long history of, uh, you know, human rights abuses, you would think people would be fired up to vote. But, but again, we're not, we're not logical. I don't think that there's, I don't think that there is a way to reconcile it. And you also have to remember that, that, um, that fatalism is real in the, in the sense that when people believe that they have no power, they then strip themselves further of power. So, Fred, what about fear in that equation? I mean, uh, when I was thinking about this too, when Zach was talking about it, that, um, that, it, that you know, there is something rational about this response to fear, right? If, if, the, if the political climate and the political messages and also the economic realities carry a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. How does that, how does, you know, how do you counter that or how do you shape that in terms of media narratives? You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about what we can do to 
break through the fearfulness, and I don't know that I have a good answer. You know, I, I love facts, but I think facts alone won't convince people to be more fearful, and perhaps that's not the point of journalism. Um, it's very hard to do journalism in a time where you know a lot of people are throwing up their force field and saying, I reject this fact, you know? Like undocumented immigrants and their employers pay $12 billion a year to the Social Security Fund, which will never be withdrawn by those people. That's a fact, but the force field sort of, you know, some people will accept that and some people will reject it. I think that fear, fear is fundamentally dealt with on a, this is a very unsettled time in the American economy, in American religion and social mores and values. And I think that people finding a new normal will reduce the fear, but that doesn't mean that journalism can move the needle. Journalism just has to keep doing what journalism does well, which, which is to provide the context. But I think it's really up to civic leaders, social leaders, religious leaders, educational leaders to deal with the fear. I th well, I think it's important to so I, I agree with all that, and I, I don't want this to sound uh, like a you know again it's it's all of this stuff uh, together. But the like you know as as irrational as we are, we we're we're also very rational in some ways, and we are irrational and rational at the same time. And you know like again like tr Trump was Trump actually had this some very concrete messages. You know he had a very concrete, um, easy to remember, you know, anti-Islamic message uh, and an and a anti-immigrant message. Um, and, and both of those were, were very racist, right? And But he also had this economic message, right? And so, and you know, and for somebody who hates immigrants and doesn't want immigrants, it's actually pretty rational to vote for the guy who says he's going to deport 11 million immigrants. But also, but but you know, that, that, that work, think about that worker who I described earlier. Think about how he probably reacted to this, um, you know, this this uh, Trump rap that he gave, you know, sometimes three times a day in stadiums in Michigan and Pennsylvania. I'm just going to read like one small part here. Our politicians have aggressively pursued a policy of globalization, moving our jobs, our wealth, our factories to Mexico and overseas. Globalization has made the financial elite who donate to politicians very wealthy, but it has left millions of our workers with nothing but poverty and heartache. When subsidized foreign steel is dumped into our markets, threatening our factories, the politicians do nothing. For years, they watched on the sidelines as our jobs vanished and communities were plunged into depression level unemployment. Many of these areas still have never recovered. Our politicians took away from people their means of making a living and supporting their families. So he's translating the Marxist means of production there. And then he goes on to say, we are going to rebuild the economy here, right? And he started talking about big, beautiful factories that he was going to build right there in the, whatever community he was talking in. So, you know, it, it, there's, 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 uh, there's the irrational fear of immigrants who, you know, the more immigrants we have, the safer we are. That's a fact. The, the, the more immigrants, the safer the roads, the schools, your workplace, everything. So that's just, that's just Trump lying about immigrants and whipping everybody up into a frenzy, um, which is easy to do. But then when it comes to the economy, he's actually telling the truth, in, you know, at least in that clip, which he repeated over and over again. And, and you know, and okay, so how do, we, um, how do we oppose this? Well, where was the truth on the other side? Where was the campaign on the other side, whether it was in the, in the you know, whether it was in op-ed pieces or in the Clinton campaign or in the Bernie campaign for that matter? <clears throat> Where was the where was the where was the campaign that said we're going to rebuild our means of making a living? Was that anywhere on the other side? Even Bernie didn't have it actually. You know, he talked about inequality, but he really didn't have a compelling message about how we're going to rebuild our economy. You know, it's what you said reminds me of something that um, the Canadian Prime Minister uh, said recently. He said, "When companies post record profits on the backs of workers consistently refuse full-time work and the job security that comes with it, people get defeated." And when governments serve special interests instead of the citizen interest who elected them, people lose faith. And I think that yeah. describes a lot of our yeah. electorate. But, but I just want to, the, the really key thing there is that, because the Democrats often do say that kind of thing, but Trump said, I'm going to build factories in your right. community. Yeah. And the Democrats and the, the mainstream media laughed at that. They're like, oh, 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 factories in America, that's so silly. But actually, for the vast majority of Americans, that sounds like an incredibly good idea and a very real thing, because they've got factories in their communities already. They just need more. So 
uh, Barney Frank has a, a, a kind of one of his mantras is, is if you ask people to vote for things that will improve the lot of others but leave them worrying about what it means to themselves at a minimum that they're going to pay for it they'll vote against it and it seems to me if you take the communities that you were talking about both white and black that had concerns the clinton campaign did nothing for them it just was a long list of, commu of communities that were going to get helped possibly at their expense so they'll vote but the other side of it to think and it's a qu my question for you is only half the population voted and most people don't read so certainly newspapers so can you talk about while you were out there uh, talking to people what about the fact that they weren't going to vote at all which was half the population of potential voters of the United States why aren't they voting this is serious stuff yeah I mean I think that um, I think that the fact that many Americans don't vote is nothing new, but we still have to pursue some solutions. Like, first of all, why not make voting a holiday? The reason that voting is on a Tuesday has to do with farmers going to church. I won't bother explaining. You can look it up for yourself. <laughs> why, why Tuesday? Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why Tuesday? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, no, yeah. You know? no, it's, it's it, it exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, really? yeah, yeah. I, I'm yeah. all for that. You ride your horse and buggy into town on Sunday for church. You ride into <laughs> town on Monday for market, and you ride it into town on Tuesday to vote. Yeah, huh. which worked great at some point, but not on, so great now. On Why Tuesday? <laughs> they go around. They ask all the everybody why Why do we vote on Tuesday? And not a single mate. <laughs> Like, not a single presidential candidate with any idea. Yeah, and, and so the thing is, leave, leave it on a Tuesday, but why not make it a national holiday? You know, I would give up President's Day for voting day every four years. Why not? People make it a four-day long weekend and go out of town. Okay, let's give them Monday and Tuesday. I mean, there's, there's some simple solutions that I actually think would move the needle. You know, yeah. in some places there's very long lines. Oh, and, and there are dangerous solutions with partisan consequences. This is not a nonpartisan decision. Democrats understand that this favors turnout of Democratic voters, and so do Republicans. Republicans have got higher turnout levels. They trust that their voters are turning out in a low voting environment to create the consequential politics that we have. So I don't understand how this is a neutral or good government huh? idea. It's a, I mean. Well, that's, uh, so Richard was saying that, um, that basically this would favor lower turnout groups, which would lean Democratic, and therefore there would not be any movement on this. I'm not, I, you know, I, I, I hear you, but I'm just saying there's some practical, there's, there are practical concerns. I think that many people find that they have no problem voting. I live in areas where I have no problem voting. There are other people for whom it disrupts their entire day, it disrupts their child care, it disrupts their education. So let's, let's at least surface the question of fixing that. But I think beyond that, it really is the question of what are you going to get from voting? And a lot of people think the answer is nothing. They either think they're going to get nothing because somebody's got their back, therefore they don't have to turn up, someone else will vote in their interest, or they think more often that they're going to get nothing because politics doesn't solve anything, we've been electing people forever, look at how bad the roads are, look at how bad the schools are. And I grew up in Baltimore, which is hardly a perfect city. Um, I love it. But my family was full of civil servants, you know, post office, social security, et cetera. Um, you know, my mom was a, a Baltimore City school teacher. And we understood that everything from our employment to my education to our ability to fix our used car relied on having a functional government that, first of all, overemployed African Americans, and by that I mean not overemployed as in too many, but the, the civil service has been where, and a lot of my family's military too, the civil service is where black people have gone when no one else would hire them fairly. So my family understood that the bread on the table and our ability to put money in the basket at church on Sunday <clears throat> relied on having a functional government. Some people don't feel the same way. They feel that the government is the enemy. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, my voice is, is going, so I'll try and, and put this out there. I'm Leah Wright-Ricker um, uh, from the Kennedy School, 
So a couple questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick the, the juiciest one, I think, right now, <laughs> which is that, um, oh gosh, now I'm conflicted. Um, <laughs> ask them ask ask both. both. Ask them both. <laughs> both. So the first one is that I, I was wondering if, that, if you guys maybe could talk a little bit about Trump being non-ideological. Um, and, and specifically in terms of, you know, you know mm. if I think of an ideologue, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody like Ted Cruz, right, or a candidate like that. But here comes Donald Trump, who is talking about, in terms of, um, you know, maybe his ideology might be de best described as kind of racial nationalism, right? Or, or he describes it as economic nationalism. But essentially, going against the grain in terms of Republican politics, um, in terms of very specific economic policies, right? Um, and really kind of subverting that and, and traditional narratives around what the Republican base wants. And then seeing the Republican base respond very kind of um, uh, with great interest to that. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of, and, and at times how he incorporates ideas that we might think of as left wing economic politics. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, I think, in terms of what some of what you guys have been talking about, um, and, and I think uh, uh, what you mentioned about Bar what Barney Frank is talking about, he's essentially talking about zero-sum zero politics. Mm -hmm. But how some voters, if they feel like they are part of the group that is receiving benefits, then all of a sudden that they'll support it, right? So we see support for reparations shoot up when, a so when we say it's going to be economic reparations, so based on economic income. Right, as opposed to racial redress or something like that. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. The other part, uh, the other question I was going to ask is that <coughs> I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the media narrative that is right now veering into territory that romanticizes white working class voters and white working class voters that voted for Donald Trump, right? which is not necessarily reflective of the entire complicated story, including mm -hmm. how white voters bisected on, on interesting levels, right? So poor white voters and how they voted is very different than the narrative that we're hearing about, okay, they overwhelmingly went for Trump, that's actually not true, mm -hmm. right? Um, or that say, for example, 16% of college-educated black men voted for Donald Trump, right? That's very different from the narrative that we are hearing, but I do think it's having an impact on how we are talking about it in larger spaces, including this <coughs> idea of how do we win over the hearts and minds of white working class voters Right in in you know in this era of Trump, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it, it really feels like at certain points that, that that media, but even the public conversation about this moment is that you know diverging to a conversation solely about that that really kind of is talking about the forgotten man, and when we talk mm -hmm. about the forgotten man, we're really talking about white working class voters or mm -hmm. even who are mar or voters who are marginally more well off than the rest of the country, but we don't hear that same kind of romanticization when it comes to, say, black or Latino working class voters mm -hmm. or this large group, 30%, right, of non-voters in this country. So, so two questions. One, uh, how do you understand Trump? Uh, is he an I ideologue or not? And, and how, do you, how, how do you think about his, the contradictions in his own platform and approach? And then two, is the media romanticizing white working class voters? So let's take them one at a time. I'll <coughs> defer to you for um, for the the ideology question for for the most part. But I will say that on election night at three a.m. after having been on ABC's digital channel for hours, I walked out into Times Square, Square and interviewed a Latino guy from Queens in his 20s whose girlfriend was Muslim Americans Muslim American and they were both Trump voters mm -hmm. and uh, you know they were actually fighting with some uh, I don't know if they were Clinton voters but they weren't Trump voters they were having an argument and I interrupted the argument and was like hey and he was literally carrying like a Trump banner um, and and I interviewed him and he was very clear like I'm Latino my girlfriend's Muslim American we're Trump voters because you know, we're entrepreneurs and we don't want to be overtaxed. So I think that, you know, they saw opportunity in him. Um, well, uh, yeah, on the, well, uh, yeah, and remember, it, it's true, it, it's such a, sh you know, yeah, I mean, it's such a horrible moment, right? But the, but yeah, this, this forgotten man uh, narrative is so strong. But, you know, I just remember, in two, remember that feeling in 2008 and it was kind of, it was like the forgotten person 
and that forgotten person was, you know, who had elected Obama, um, you know, on soaring rhetoric about, you know, we're going to do Main Street, not Wall Street, and, you know, hope and change, and it was really pretty awesome. And there was this feeling like, wow, this new majority, you know, that's totally uh, multiracial, men and women, has, has stood together and done something incredible. And, and, and it really was, I mean, I, I, you know, in Michigan, like I made this graph that you're not gonna be able to really see, but, but like this, I just, just before, cause I wanted to sort of just have a picture in my head so I, you know, wouldn't make up too many alternative facts. And but like, look in 2008, if you can all see that, that's just like, you know, Obama got so many more votes than whoever he was running against in 2008. And, um, <laughs> But then also look at 1984, where Reagan, you know, in his second term, won, you know, he, he won a massive majority in Michigan. So, you know, traditionally a democratic state. Well, what did, you know, what was the thing that was in common there, right? Big, soaring story, right? A whole new vision for America. And I, Trump had that too. So why did he only slightly win in Michigan? because of the tapes and the crazy, crazy, crazy anti-immigrant stuff and, um, you know, all, all the other stuff, all the, you know, and just the fact that he was completely crazy and, uh, sorry, I shouldn't be saying crazy, but, but, um, but, uh, but, you know, just, just cause it was so awful, right? So I think that, I think if he had been a normal person with his economic message um, and with his anti-corruption message, I think he would have won a huge majority. Actually, if he had been, if he had been not a bad guy and not totally corrupt and incompetent himself. Yeah. I do want to say that uh, I do want to pick pick up on this. That you know, uh, three three main policy planks in some sense that Trump ran on. Right. The first is uh, you know. Uh, anti-immigrant. The second is anti-globalization, anti-free trade. And the third is anti-corruption. And those are the same three issues that animated Ross Perot's campaign and Ross Perot's voters. Those, those three core issues have a long and significant strain in the American electorate that Trump seized on. And, and so, um, it's not maybe a, a part of the of the conservative Republican orthodoxy, but it has a long political history in the United States, and and Trump was a was a flawed messenger or carrier of that for sure. Flawed is not a strong enough word by a long shot. Yeah, um, but obviously not flawed enough. Well, I just wanted to to throw in one more thing on this, which is that. I've been thinking a lot about the Clinton campaign slogan, Stronger Together, and I think it points out why her campaign failed. It makes an assumption that everyone thinks stronger together, when in fact the history of American politics is about factions battling for dominance. Yeah. And you can't assume that everyone wants to collaborate. So when you talk about um, you know, the, the emphasis on the working class white voter, what I would like to see, and, and something that I may end up working on, is to really assess what people's strategic desires are as constituencies and when people are willing to collaborate even if they don't like people. Because that's also one way that politics gets done. So don't assume that working class whites want to be in a multiracial coalition just on general principles. Like, let's ask. Let's, let's do some really deep research and figure out under what circumstances do working class whites want to be in a political alliance with working class blacks and working class Latinos because part of the foundations of American society has been pitting against, pitting working class people of different races. I mean in some countries class is a much more important deciding factor in politics and party affiliation than race. But in America race has always been used to thread the needle divide and conquer. So I think we have to just ask much more probing questions about when people view themselves as adversaries and when they view themselves as partners and not assume that everyone wants to be partners all the time. So what about, do you think, both of you, that the media is romanticizing the working class white voters? And what, what, would, be the, what would be the antidote to that? I don't think it's, romanticizing to me is perhaps the wrong word. I think it's, I think it's a level of privileging conversations. You know, um, the, the American media, which I've been in for over a quarter of, of a century, has never been 
as interested in the lives of working class people as middle class and above, has never been as interested in the inner lives of people of color as whites. So why should we be surprised now that the conversation is privileging whiteness? Um, I, I'm not surprised at all. I think that we have to begin to assess how we can pay attention, because a, a lot of the news coverage of people of color is, is sort of um, voyeuristic and, and uh, anthropological and not really, not inclusive, not deep, often repetitive and superficial. I mean, I'm just gonna be real. Um, and, and I don't want working class whites to get any less or more attention than people of color do that's meaningful because working class whites haven't been getting great media coverage either. I want a rising tide of attention to lift all the boats. Let's look more deeply into the deep social conservatism in the black and Latino communities. Let's look more deeply into how uh, certain progressive ideals in working class white communities meet up against certain regressive um, ideals, you know, uh, and, and I just think that we have to open the box, but, but it should be an opening up that really transcend, not transcends race is also a dangerous term, but that, that is not based upon racial privilege through its examination. We have to realize this is a great moment to really open up to look at the lives of working class people across race and across national origin and not just focus on one group. Um, well, I, I don't think I have anything to add to that, but I did want to answer your question about ideology if and uh, or, or say something about it that um, I think it, it, it's total to me. I'm just kind of blown away that Trump is talking about rebuilding our means of making a living, you know, which really is this translation of means of production. Right. And uh, Trump is channeling Marx. Yeah. And but but here's the thing is like. Um, I really think that, you know, where it's coming from, you know, Steve Bannon, it's coming from a lot of other people that, you know, have been around Trump. And if you really look at what those folks have been reading, um, they, you know, they, 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 they're actually really becoming national socialists. You know, it's, it's not, you know, uh, you know, as in Nazis, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're not affiliating or with the Nazis, but they, but this concept of national socialism, you know, socialism for your people. Um, they, they're actually reading history and getting converted to socialism in a nationalist uh, context. And if you like, you know, uh, just look up a, a normie's guide to the alt-right and read this crazy account of all these different threads of the so-called alt-right and, and what's really unifying them, um, which is, uh, you know, this, this old anti-Semitic, you know, national socialist um, uh, ideologies. And um, and it's written by a participant, you know, not a external observer, but it's very honest and and and, and lots of links and history and everything. So um, yeah, so so I, I mean, I think what's fascinating is that you know they that that socialism, you know, as this basic concept that that we as a people can decide how we make a living, and that in fact, in any high wage country like Germany or Japan or whatever one you want to pick. They're constantly investing in their industry, right? So that does, in those cases, Japan and Germany are not national socialists. They're just like countries that are investing in their economies, you know. And there's a that a lot of people would call that a certain kind of socialism, democratic socialism, and uh, and so so yeah. What's amazing is is Trump. I think is actually um, not just channeling socialism, but he's starting to argue for like certain chunks of socialism. The crazy thing is that, you know, the Democrats, you know, and even Bernie, you know, did not, were not championing any kind of uh, real, you know, agenda to rebuild our industry. Um, and so, so it's really kind of a terrifying moment because I think that the American people are going to get more and more attracted to Trump and his agenda uh, depending on how, you know, in, in relation to how serious he is about investing in industry and infrastructure and all that. And, and uh, so who knows? He seems to be good at, like, pushing hard for the things he wants. And if, if he and Steve Bannon really want to uh, rebuild industries and infrastructure, if they really do it, the Democrats are toast. They're, never, they're not going to win it in 2020. They're not going to get a bounce in 2018. And, and the Republican Party... Just watch them. They're going to fall like dominoes for 
this message of rebuild industry and you know even tariffs and all that stuff they're just going to fall right over because it actually makes sense and is the right thing for america to do okay so unfortunately we're out of time and uh <laughs> you heard it here we'll have to revisit zach we'll have you back in 2021 <laughs> um, and i just want to say one of the things i appreciate about both zach and fry is their willingness to really live outside the bubble and encounter uh, encounter people and ideas in a very real and and an honest way and and engage with them um seriously and intellectually and morally so it's been a it's been an honor and a privilege to work with them this spring and learn from both of them in their different ways but they have they have that in common and let's give a round of applause to our speakers Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.